Well, well, well. Look what the cat dragged in. So, so, so many times on my last podcast, I would periodize each conversation piece or hot take with so in order for you to be able to tell that I was moving on to either an example or the next topic I think I might hold a poll for my next one to see who can guess how many times I say so and it's actually I should point out quite different from so so many times so 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 it's completely different from saying the uh, almost expletive so there's like that drop down like that downward inflection at the end of it which denotes that you're about to experience change well here we all are This is the third podcast, and I am recording this in my car, actually, because it's a really rainy day, and I thought it might add an ambient texture, having the raindrops pop down and around for you to listen to as I talk. But this one, this one's really going to be about uh, some actual master's work that I've done, as opposed to just talking off the top of my head about sleep. So yesterday, uh, I managed to complete my ethics application for some of the study work that I'm going to do with, uh, with my master's. Now, I've got two things that I want to do with my master's, but uh, the first one's actually quite easy. It's, a, it's getting an ethical approval for uh, a comparison of GPS, which is your... GPS units, we're using VX at Team Wellington, but if you're on social media and you do any kind of sport, you're probably festooned with paid-for images of Statsport at the moment. They're everywhere. Um, or Catapult, Catapult or another one, which are really, really aggressively marketing themselves. And basically what I do with the GPS units is I measure, you know, definitely measurable outcomes like total distance, high-intensity distance, so for us we count high-intensity speed as anything over 15k per hour. Um, we do meters per minute, which is, I, again, you know, that's just a take the total distance that you've done and divide it over a minute. So if you play 90 minutes and you've covered around 10 and a half to 11k, probably in a region of 100 meters per minute, that type of thing. It is a an easier bite-sized figure to work with when you're trying to talk to somebody about their work output in the game. So it's not necessarily the most important metric, but it's it's a nice little bite-sized one so you can talk to people about their conditioning. And then the other one I use is max speed. And that's because where we are, we want actions to happen faster and having a max speed if you're always trying to work on those actions being faster every time over a period of time you can have greater conditioning to that and therefore your 
in a game situation you're more than likely to have higher max speed so typically wingers are the ones that have the best opportunity to hit a max speed or left wing backs right wing backs but also you've got to consider tracking backs so center mids and center backs also have those opportunities say after lost possession at a set piece in a corner in the attacking third they've got to cover an 80 meter and they can build up top speeds over that but typically typically you would expect uh, lighter more nimble players to hit those top speeds and at Team Wellington last year, I think our top moving speed in a game situation was 36 point something kilometers per hour. So that's what I'm going to use JP, uh, G, GPS for. It's a, it's a really, really handy tool for monitoring physical output. My review of the field, though, however, led me to believe that for uh, an amateur or a semi-professional athlete, that just monitoring what people do at their trainings or games with the team isn't enough. You've got to have a total idea of how these guys are feeling because so many of them have non-exercise variable workloads. Like uh, one guy might swing a hammer and lift jib. 50 to 60 hours a week and another guy might be sitting in an office so for that I'm going to compare with a rate of perceived exertion so how hard somebody felt a task was the idea being with these is that neither one is a perfect solution but in an amateur environment Using RPE gives you the opportunity to speak to the athlete about performance. Whereas if I run 10, 10 and a half, 11k in a game one week, and then I have a really tough week, and I run 10, 10 and a half, 11k in a game against a different opposition the following week, one might have been harder than the other. But for me, I have a score on uh, a GPS unit which is equal but those two may not be equal in our context what you see over a period of time is that that score will diminish so that's it's good that we can have it or that score will improve but without speaking to the athlete there's no context so there's no room really an amateur semi-professional to do data analysis without having a direct line to the athlete to speak to them in an empathetic sense where you can find out what's really going on for them and I think that's the advantage of RPE and the beauty about RPE is it's free <laughs> all you have to do is say on a scale of 1 to 10 10 being volitional exhaustion or you know I literally can't move my feet anymore, it's too much. And one being sleep. How hard do you think that was? And usually you'll get feedback about, oh, you know, or six or seven, you know, it's kind of hard. So then you hit them with, if six was challenging, but you could easily maintain conversation, and seven was, you can talk, 
but you're not willing to offer conversation, which is it more like? And then they can relate that to an experience that they've had uh, and how they have perceived that experience. And then everybody is on the same page with, with description. Then it becomes very unilateral across the board and everybody's speaking the same language and we're communicating in the same way. One of the issues though is some people don't like to talk about their experience because despite the fact that I've been a sports scientist with my club for six years and everybody knows that I don't want to be on the selection panel and I don't want to offer my opinion on who's more suited for what opposition. I just want to talk in absolutes. I want to say athlete one is capable of 11Ks per game, X speed, X average moving pace. They do this many sprints, they do that many decelerations, they report back the following day feeling good uh, versus this guy's maybe good for 30 minutes because he's he's not been hitting those numbers recently and we need to guide him back in. Um, my side is that I I can only offer truth and I can only act in the best interest of a player's welfare. An example of that might be X player is coming back from injury we're short in his position I would rather we play a different player who's in better condition out of position and then slowly coax the new player back in I have a general timeline of 30 minutes if 30 minutes goes well the following week 60 minutes if that goes well the following week 90 minutes but in reality it doesn't always work and I don't always get listened to and that is the nature of football and football coaching is that I'm there to advise in an advisory capacity but I cannot take it personally if my head coach decides against my advice because it all falls on them um, if they if they feel they have a greater need to play somebody more suited to a position for 90 minutes. The onus is on them, my advice has been given um, and I have to support them implicitly because being a coach or being part of a coaching group is like being a parent. And you can disagree with something that the other parent says, but only in private because if you're undermining them in front of the child they've got no power in the relationship to do good 98% of the time that they do something that you do agree with um, it's not us and them it's more supporting somebody in a decision even if it goes against you it's, it's, it's just it's just good relationship management if you support them in this one and they end up being wrong you don't gloat either you say, you know, you, you took a chance and it didn't pay off. Let's look back, review and improve what we offer these guys. Of course, I'm always going to argue to the hilt if I don't see players being ready, but uh, 
yeah, as soon as the decision's been made, it's, I've done my part. They've reviewed the information that I've given them. I've not done enough, maybe, to convince them otherwise. But I certainly don't. I certainly don't have any power in selecting players. So, yeah, I think my guys are mature enough to understand that. And then that means that when they come to me, they come to me because they know I want everybody to be picked. And uh, I don't have a favorite player or a favorite player in a position. I have a little family that I want to take care of all the time. And I want everybody playing as much football as much as possible. And I don't think other clubs do that as well as we do. Because our roles are pretty set. I've been through three coaches at the club that I've been at now. And for the most part, they all really, really respect what I have to say. Because they know my skin in the game is how well the boys do physically. Um secondary to that is emotional and that's why I feel that rate of perceived exertion in our context is a much more valuable metric than meters total so that was my review of the field um, how this comes back to ethics when is it ethical at all to test people I don't love testing. I certainly don't love the yo-yo IR2. But sometimes in order to be able to prove that something's working, you have to do some testing stuff. So I generally roll with some baseline movement tests just to see how well people move. Um, and I roll with using the GPS metrics, which I just told you were... Well, I didn't say they were redundant, but I said they're... A, a little bit less value than the Route 1 conversations. This year I do have to test, whereas last year I didn't test, as in terms of a physical test, I certainly am not going to do a yo-yo IR2, um, because I don't feel that that actually replicates what we do on a football pitch, that multi-sprint element. But uh, I'm going to do a modified Bronco, so I'm taking a leaf out of what they do with rugby in terms of speed endurance, but I'm going to modify it in that I'm not going to get the guys to do the same speed, I'm going to get them to varied efforts so uh, Bronco the way the rugby boys do it it is a test where you run 20 meters out 20 meters back 40 meters out 40 meters back 60 meters out 60 meters back and that is steady state the whole way through and the hard part is the acceleration through the turning and that's where they feel it is sport specific so for me, I know if I look at my data for Team Wellington, 75% of the time they're at a walking or jogging pace. So for my modified test, I want them to sprint 20 meters, jog back, sprint 40 meters, sprint back, sprint 60 meters, sprint back. And you know, you repeat that five times the same way they do in the regular Bronco. And what I'm looking for is an improvement of max speed in the sprint which is one of the metrics that we record on GPS and then I'm also looking for a average moving pace and it should be that over a fitness program 
that we'll do, which is both cognitive and physical in our preseason block, it should be that we see an improvement in that. But it's it's also good for you guys to note that in New Zealand we play both a winter and a summer season, so most of the guys are actually coming in in relatively good condition. Um, but in the winter leagues, in general, the pitches aren't quite as good, and in general the competition isn't as good as in the National League, um, although it's improving regularly. Um, it's important to remember that, you know, physical fitness and, and, and uh, I guess, finesse of action are, are two different things. One's cognitive, one's physical. Um, but you have to do the physical to improve your cognitive, so they're intertwined. I am, um, in reviewing the ethics application, I have to think even more than I normally would do about a player's well-being. Not necessarily from, I'm doing this to take care of them. I have to think about everything that I do over the course of particularly pre-season, which is where I'm going to do the data analysis. Um, am I acting in their best interest by recording this data? And who's going to see this data? Do they have privacy? Privacy is something that, you know, you kind of forget about when you're in a National League setting because you're in the public eye all the time. Um, not necessarily in the same way as A-League or Premier League players, but, you know, we're still being recorded upon. People still have opinions of you. Uh, we feature regularly in the paper, little nighttime segments in the news and stuff like that. So I have to think about... Can somebody deduce from what I'm doing? Can they deduce who you've been referred to? So I have to come up with ways of making sure that um, the identity of the people that I work with are um, hidden from the public because this is most likely going to be published and I'm most likely going to be doing some sort of presentation to my peers on on the information that I record during this so I need to be very cognizant of how my actions can invade other people's privacy um, and that's not to say that I never thought about that but I remember being interviewed for a, a podcast a while back while we're trying to win the Champions League and I was name dropping players left and right and every time I'd say somebody's name I just didn't feel right about it so I spoke to the journal at the time uh, who was working with us Talking T-Dubs was the podcast he did, Thomas, Thomas Airy really nice guy, I think he's working in Samoa with the newspapers over there at the moment um, and I just afterwards I went, you know what I actually don't feel comfortable about using people's names the way that I did um, and he was kind enough to when he reviewed and edited back which I now know is no mean feat um, he um, was good enough to edit out every time I dropped somebody's name I mean a lot of the things are that I said were relatively common knowledge they weren't slants they weren't me slanderizing anybody but they didn't ask to be included in the conversation 
so I could have been better at not doing it. It wasn't a punditry scenario. It wasn't I'd just watched a game and I was asked to speak about specific actions. I was just talking in generalities, relaying my experience. And that relates to probably how I've approached my ethics application as well. I have to think about, you know, yeah, the player might be really, really proud that he has hit at top speed. Or he might be interested to see that, you know, people like some social media stuff I put up about the exercises that he was doing. And there's a consent element in that, and that's fine. It's not necessarily going to publication, but... um, There's a certain voyeuristic element to publication of scientific that makes it feel like, emotionally at least, it's almost like I'm putting the guys in a zoo, you know. And it's not so long ago that particularly people of the Pacific were actually held as zoo exhibits in the Western world. So for me, there is an emotional thing in terms of doing scientific uh, discovery where your test subjects or your participants are probably their better better term your participants in your investigation you know you you almost dehumanize them and that's why there's such a robust ethics appraisal um a lot of the questions in there are really basic so mine's a low risk study there's no body fluids been collected it's just looking at data and feedback so there's a questionnaire that everybody has to answer daytime there's some there's some there's some little physical tests that we'll do on people that are very very low invasive so it's just measuring knee to wall or sit and reach stuff that the guys do with me anyway because i find that lets me know how well they're doing physically too um but yeah sitting down and doing an actual application where you've got to review your processes and sort of second guess yourself are, have I ever been <laughs> have I ever been acting in good faith the guys and you know when I look at our injury rates for our team is really really low over the last two years we've had a sixth of the normal injury rates for a team of our size so one sixth um, ordinarily, you'd have 18 hamstring injuries in a team of our size this season. In, in a season, we had six total injuries in terms of non-contact injuries uh, over the last season. We had even less the season before it, but a lot of that's got to do with how many games we played. We had nine players leave after Christmas time to go off to do near full-time or full-time environments after the Club World Cup and we had to bring in players that weren't necessarily conditioned to the volume of games that we were playing um, which meant it was a really really tough balancing act yeah I still have some regrets over how we do but anyway in general we sort of really pride ourselves um, on how well we look after players in our environment and uh, I think sometimes it's not enough to think about how well your outcomes are if you're not necessarily thinking about how your approach is in terms of an ethical standard. It kind of gets me onto some other stuff about 
and best interest of players in general. I mean, away from my master's study. It got me thinking about... Well, there was a topic in the newspaper recently that's going around about involvement. A lot of the major sports are changing their tack and they're trying to make sports less competitive uh, at the youth level because they want to keep people engaged. Now, I was fortunate enough to work as a director of sport at a private school for a while. In Wellington, the industry, or industry, look at me, dickhead, um, the norm for participation in youth sports in schools is 60%, and I managed to improve a school going from 88% up to 92% in, in the 18 months that I was at a school. And a lot of that was me chasing down boys, trying to get them into sports they never played before, that type of thing. But representing your school, you know, you're talking about 32% better than the, than the norm. So it's something that I'm quite good at. Engaging people to play sports is something I'm quite good at. Um, and I feel that taking the competitive element out of sports is actually redundant. I think that it actually takes away from the experience. If they really wanted to improve youth sports, they should invest in coaches and the standard of coaching. Because I feel where we fail kids a lot is not gearing them to deal with failure. Failure is an incredible teaching tool if you're opening to if you're open to failure. It's a It's really, really robust teaching environment. Sitting in a room and having to think what happened. And there's some teams where you're under resourced, uh, you're under resourced, and you are not necessarily as good as the opposition. But I think you need to think about where you take your points from. If you're a 500 student school and you've got 60 eligible boys to play for your first team or 60 eligible girls to play for their first team and you come up against a school which is, you know, vastly superior in terms of number and resources, if you lose 5-0, could have lost 10 nil if it wasn't for the actions that you did and think about the good in what you've done and focus on those positive behaviors and then think about how you can take pride in how yeah you were down four nil but you only <laughs> uh, conceded one goal after that i think our approach to to just winning and losing and not how we play the game or how we deal with defeat is where we're failing kids Not the element of competition. Playing time is another one. If they want to improve how kids go, they need to make sure that every sport's got rolling subs or maybe that we're playing in pods rather than playing in full teams. Like I'm a big fan of it, particularly in, in football um, or soccer, to those that call it that. Um, Small-sided games for kids. Um, uh the reason for that is that touches, touches on the ball, actions, behaviours, kids are notorious for not paying attention. So, you know, 
if you're putting them in a focused environment where they have to pay attention for a 30 minute period that's significantly better than playing 11 v 11 where they may not see the ball for 20 minutes meanwhile they're looking at the mum talking on the sideline doing funny dances with the defender from the other team you know humans are inherently competitive we're always competitive you know yeah okay your kid may not be competitive in the football game but they're competing for your attention on the sideline by wanting to come over and talk to you they're competing with other ex uh, external things for the most part kids are competing with their parents phones for attention and um, i'll put my hand up for that being guilty as well but i don't think the element of competition in youth sports is is the problem i think us the adults and how we treat them and how we teach them i think that's the problem so there you are, there's a hot take. Flaming hot take. And I, I think with hot takes as well, it's, that's my opinion based on my understanding. So if you disagree with it, I, I welcome you to, to come at me and say, hey, you know what, um, I don't think you're right. Uh, it would be nicer for me if you were pleasant about it, but I totally understand if you want to punch me in the head, so... Call me a dickhead if you have to. It's okay. If we look at uh, youth sports and how we're funding it, I agree that we are guilty of using performance outcomes to enhance the experience for a select few. But we neglect to see the development pathway of kids as they come through. Everybody develops at different speeds, which is why it might be better for us to think about mixed age games based on ability, or if you want, if you're dead set on taking the competitive element out of how they do something, which I actually think is impossible, you might find that um, understanding how you would like to get to a performance outcome being different from the display or achievement of a performance outcome. If you want your team to win, you've got to teach a winning mindset. If you want your There's, there's a statement in itself. If you want to teach a winning mindset, sometimes to win, you have to do things that you don't like doing. We had one guy playing for us at the Club World Cup, and he's always been pigeonholed, always been pigeonholed as a type of player because of how he physically presents. He's one of the biggest guys in the team. He's one of the strongest guys in the team. And... I've seen him play both amateur and professional football. And I've seen him when he was at the very beginning of his career, although he didn't even know who I was back then. But I've seen him play for a long, long time. I saw him play in a national setup. I saw him play in a, a, a national age grade setup. What was clear to me that a lot of other coaches didn't see is that he was a very, very finessed player 
with unbelievable ball skills at his feet, who was pigeonholed as a as an Emil Heskey type, an old school power forward, uh, a guy that can suck in defenders, nod the ball back down to a more physically finessed, capable, smaller player who can dribble, pass, shoot, that type of thing. But really, he had all of those things in his skill set and had to compete with the fact that generally he was marked by two or three players. At the Club World Cup, this is exactly the scenario that was happening. He wasn't playing the game he wanted to play because he was sacrificing his experience in one of the biggest games of his life for the betterment of the people around him because he's a winner. He's got a winner's mentality and he is on the biggest stage he's ever played on. One of the most competitive games he probably ever played. Um, we were playing against a team called Alain. Alain, I think their annual wage bill is 65 million US dollars. That could fund our club for a uh, hundred years, there thereabouts, give or take a couple of years, logistically from the ground up, paying the GM, paying the head coach, paying me a little more than I probably am already getting paid, paying all the players' wages, renting flights, this, that, the other. Phenomenal amount of money just on players' wages, and we're just a bunch of builders and office workers from Little Wellington, the other side of the world. But I digress. Um, this guy is at halftime, we're 3-1 up against millionaires. And he says it, he says it to the head coach, he goes, I'm not playing the way I want to play, but I know I'm doing a job. That's because he's a winner. He's a winner who's willing to sacrifice his own personal experience. Now, if we're going to take that back to youth sports, I agree that that level of competitiveness isn't conducive to the development of young athletes because I think that in order to develop there is the emotional side of actually enjoying the sport which will keep them coming back it's the same premise I have with coaching I never use exercise to punish I worked with a coach before who used to always say that he'd send players running with me if they didn't do what he said and I used to cringe. Oh, that sucks so much because eventually these guys are going to stop playing football and what's going to happen? They're going to look at going out for a run and doing something which is just good for not only their physical but mental health, going out for a simple run. And they're going to feel bad about that experience. You know, so I agree that at a youth level, that level of self-sacrifice or that level of self-awareness isn't necessarily conducive into building a good relationship with your sport, but pure competition of, I scored a goal, you didn't, or who's the first to touch their nose, or ring-a-ring-a-rosy, or duck-duck-goose, all of these games build gamemanship. It's up to the adults to dictate how fairly they do it or teaching kids how to cope with loss or grief and being a good role model, a good, well-balanced, emotionally balanced individual. 
So if you really want kids to continue on with sport or engage with sport, it's recognising what level they're at and then finding them an environment where they can thrive at their own level. A lot of the kids that don't want to play in their teenage years are kids who have been told they're not good enough. Nobody's not good enough to play a sport. Just because there's somebody who is of Premier League level or National League level or Central League level doesn't mean that you're not good enough to play a sport. It just means you've got more to work on. And whether you do that through breaking down individual skills and working at them laboriously or finding a way to put them in an environment where they can playfully learn how to do it, that's got to come down to what approach fits what individual the best. But competition is, it's going to happen. And if they can't enjoy it through sport, how are they going to handle competition in the workplace, competition in relationships? How are they going to, you know, they go, they apply for a job and they don't get the first job they go, they go for, but they've never dealt with loss before. So they're like, oh, fuck this. Sport is the most linear place where you can learn to achieve and learn to deal with grief and learn to deal with loss and uh, embrace critical feedback. It's a really, really good teaching tool. So I think it's flawed. I think it's really flawed, a really flawed approach. I'd like to be persuaded otherwise because I see the flaws in the approach for competitiveness in sports too. And I would like to think of being able to have an environment for my own child where she doesn't ever have to feel like she's not good enough to do something. Which in our current model is a, it's a pervasive aspect of what we're doing. It's, it's something that we are regularly seen but that's nothing to do with the kids and the coach uh, uh, and what they're doing it's got to do with the coaches we engage with them and a lot of the time that's because we've got the most enthusiastic mum or dad out there joining in and they're just doing a monkey see monkey do scenario where they're yelling and shouting at the kids because that was the coaching experience they had if they're going to pump tons of money into redeveloping the wheel in terms of how kids play sport, the most obvious thing for me is facilities and coaching, and coaching being an extension of facilities and how we invest our money on that. New Zealand football, underneath Anthony Hudson, which was a really short period of time, spent 10 million New Zealand dollars on giving our national men's football team, I should say men specifically, because you know, the women's team didn't get a look in. And um, he spent $10 million over a really short, I think it was three years, three or five years. For the amount of games that we played in that time, uh, it certainly wasn't a very good investment. That kind of money could have been spent on developing coaching courses for free for youth coaches. At the moment, you know, I'm about to go do my C license, my OFC slash NZC license. Uh, and that's going to cost a thousand bucks. A 
$1,000. If you're a dad or a mum of a child and a teen, and you've got to spend, I think the cheapest license, I think it's like, I mean, they've got an intro level one, which is for free, and that's done by the local federations, and that's fine. But if you're actually going to develop as a coach, you've, you've got to do more than just one thing. You've got to be upskilling, just so that you can get more out of the experience than anything else. Um, because coaching is a two-way street. I get a lot from the guys that I coach. They teach me a lot about me. Um, reminding me I've got a temper for a start, and... That's having a temper is not a good way to communicate. But you know, we can look to Iceland and what Iceland did. Iceland inv invested in two things: they invested on their pitches, so the games never had to be cancelled. Now, I don't love artificial pitches, but it's an awful lot better than having kids playing in in muck. Um, the other one they did is they made the coaching courses free and. They've got more people per head of capita with UEFA A licenses than anywhere else on earth. And an outcome in the short term from that is that their men's national team are doing phenomenally well considering their total population base. And these are guys very similar to the ones that we sent to the Club World Cup. And you know, I worked with Jose Figuera and Scotty Hales in the lead up to that. They're great coaches, phenomenal coaches. Um, who will be the first to admit that they're only part way on their journey to being the coaches that they could be um, and I include myself in the same thing I'm, I've got a lot to go in terms of my potential um, but the common theme there is that these a lot of the coaches in these scenarios have A licenses, they have upskilled their coaching experience if we want our kids to enjoy their experience our sporting bodies need to make coaching more accessible. Um, yeah. Here's a hot take. There's another hot take. I think... There's a bus going past now. That's going to be really noisy on this take. That's okay. That's what I get for recording it in my car. I'm trying to get a nice little intimate, rainy day feel on this podcast. I think in terms of what we're currently teaching kids through coaching is mainly fear-based. And a lot of it's got to do with our own fears and how we coach people. Fears of making mistakes, fears of how we're seen, how we want to be perceived. And I guess there's the, the, the idea of the real self versus the ideal self in terms of how we're portrayed. The, the real self is something a lot of us don't really have an awful lot of connection with. It takes a lot of self-awareness and it takes a lot of effort to have a, a true sense of self. It, uh, it's something that escapes the vast majority of people. Anyone who's got social media for, for a start, you see an ugly picture of yourself 
the first thing you do is you take it down because you're scared that that's how people will see you, despite the fact that in everyday life people see what you look like. They may see you from that angle that that photo was taken, but that's a glancing, fleeting moment that passes in time as opposed to a digital record of how you looked at a particular time. I guess the real irony is, as we age, that ugly photograph from 10 years ago, probably an awful lot better than your starting point in current time. It sounds terribly mean, but I know uh, I, I have body issues. Um, I don't see myself as how I necessarily look. And it's something I'm aware of. I'm aware that it's a problem. I have uh, body dysmorphia. It's not on the worst scales, but it's rooted in past trauma. You know, and it's an experience which has altered my perception of myself. Uh, and it's it's very common, particularly nowadays, for people to not really know who they are and we're still not know they don't know a lot of people plodding along day to day thinking they are A but living C really easy and quite tired example is social media everybody's on holiday according to Instagram they've been on holiday since day one a lot of the time when people record their real day today doesn't make for great viewing so we switch off it's not popular it's not good content and everybody starts to think about themselves and their lives as what is and what is not good content and judging their existence off content. No sense of self or no sense of their real self versus their ideal self. That's why kids don't try things in sports. They've seen somebody else do it. They might try it in private. They might fail. They might fail on the first instance and never try again because they're fearful somebody will see that they've tried. And that doesn't align with their view of a perfect, effortless attempt at their craft. You know, if we we look at how we're approaching our own self to self-awareness, we actually, we're just avoiding awkward home truths that in general, you know, life can be pretty shitty. It's getting a very dark turn now. But, uh, most of us, if we're being totally honest with ourselves, we lack a lot of resilience. I'm first to tell you that sometimes I just want to quit because I, I, have a, I have a perception that I'm often not good enough, but 
I guess it's like uh, when you're a teenager and the girl that you like that you've never spoken to, um, she's got no idea you exist because you've you've done nothing to convince her you do. Starts dating some asshole and you think to yourself, I could be that asshole. You know, well, a you know there is a recognition that maybe you're not a hundred percent great. But there's a lack of recognition that you're willing to offer this girl less than she's worth. Humans are pretty shitty people. We don't have to be. But we can be. At times. Yeah. So I did have questions um, during the week from people... Uh, that they wanted to put through the podcast how do you one was from Frank he asked about motivation his question was how do you get back into being motivated to go to the gym when you've lost your motivation asking for a friend parenthesis that friend is me Um, so that's a good question and it's something that uh, you know I find for me, if I've done something once and I put in the graft and really tried, doing it the second time is actually even harder than the first time because in hindsight, everything feels easier. In hindsight. If you do something hard and you go back and you look at it, you, you gloss over the, the grit of that experience and you try and make out as if It was almost too easy to do, so it's not worth it. So, I... Oh! That's actually the first time I've said so in a little while, I think. Wowee. Anyway. Um, caught myself out. I ran a marathon last year. And I actually, at Christmas time, was doing some sprint stuff. 100, 200 metres getting really good at it and then the council started relaying the um the track uh, where i would train so i didn't actually have anywhere to practice the sprint stuff well i did but you know i wanted to train on a track i didn't want to train on grass again an ego thing because i'm slower on grass of course i'm slower on grass it's a different surface um i then decided i would go for a run and having come from a sports background where you could just go for a run at any time because you were constantly working your cardiovascular system I ran about two kilometers and I was fucked I was so tired I could barely breathe I hadn't done anything like that for a long long time Uh, and my ideal self as a fit and healthy young guy young question in the grand scheme of things I suppose um, I was just like what's what is this what is this so I decided to have a, a, a non-judgmental relaxed approach to running in, with the idea of over a long period of time learning to run again and getting myself back up to it uh, I didn't have any end goal I actually was really mature about how I went about doing it I started doing fart legs, so running 30 seconds, walking 30 seconds, running 30 seconds, walking 30 seconds. Uh, I didn't have any goals, um, but I did do like a 10k race where I ran it in 
under an hour and that's when I started to get a little bit more competitive again and again this element of competitiveness always comes back into my life because I'm either competing with somebody else or I'm competing with my ideal self um, uh, which is a, a negatively geared approach towards succeeding so I never really actually enjoy the final outcome because I have set the bar too high for enjoyment and that's because of my sporting environment that I grew up in uh, playing get at games and football as a kid and you had to be tough anyway I'm sort of wheeling back into this uh, my issues with kids sports but this, that's not what this is about this is about me um, getting myself into running so for somebody who couldn't run 2k's at Christmas time I ran a marathon in the first weekend of July and that was because I just exposed myself and teased myself out over time and I used some good training principles like working load so I never added or, uh, or subtracted more than 10% uh, of my total working load over a given weekly period so I got myself up as far as being able to run 30k continuously without needing to stop at relatively decent pace which is an, another box I needed to tick for myself because I like to do things quickly even if I'm doing a, a a three hour run I still like to do things quickly so I decided once I could hit 30k which was maybe about three weeks out from the race that I was going to use that as my highest point and taper down and then I ran 42 point whatever kilometers uh, completed my first marathon very naive in some of the things that I did uh, particularly around nutrition uh, I ate too much in my carbo loading phase and uh, came up with a finish time of 4 hours and 39 minutes I would have uh, definitely made it under the 4 and a half hour mark had I not needed to shit 3 times while I was on the course because you know <laughs> repetitive impact and running I was <laughs> the stuff that's in your tubes mate they're only going one way in that scenario but I did it I went out and I ran a marathon I haven't only been able to run two kilometers actually less than two kilometers um, uh, in January and that was mid-January too so you're talking about a six-month period going from from nothing to running a marathon something some people train years and years and years for um, but then after that running for the 5k's that felt enjoyable four months prior didn't even feel like it was worth it I knew I didn't want to keep running marathons I wanted to do one of those things but <laughs> it just didn't feel worth it I didn't have a competitive goal to go for anymore uh, and there was no drive and I haven't really consistently run ever since because the hindsight of the graft I'd stopped doing it for my mental health and I'd stopped doing it for my physical health I'd done it because I had set myself a deadline and a goal and I wasn't being healthy about my approach and everything had to be bigger 
everything had to be better and okay at the time I was adhering to strict scientific principle and I was being good about how I coached it but I almost can't forgive myself for letting it go because I've set myself unrealistic standards which brings it back to Frank's question are your standards for engaging with exercise part of your real self or are they part of your ideal self and if you can answer that and come around tell me because I think um, I think I need to know too anyway that's pretty much me for a podcast I'm not going to keep doing these like twice a week or something like that I just had stuff to update on the particularly the, the ethics application and implications of that application you know yeah I knew there was going to be stuff like consent forms yeah I knew there was going to be tricky questions or not knowing how to answer specific questions but I think the overriding thing that maybe you guys would be more interested in rather than me just filling out a form is is what are the implications on how I approach coaching after I have been exposed to a new way of thinking um, and that's the type of stuff I want to talk to you guys about in my podcast that and just wildly hot takes so uh, if you've got opinions on any of the stuff that I've spoken about you can message me uh, on Twitter so that's McKaygonJ M-A-C-A-O-D-H-A-G-A-I-N-J on Twitter that's at McKaygonJ or alternatively you can message me through Instagram if you have me um, or email revisionisthealth at gmail.com this has been another lovely experience the rain is starting to drive down now and I feel it's becoming less ambient so this is this is probably the right time for me to say goodbye. You have a great week, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Okay, babes, bye.